2 verses 1 to 18. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. Now this was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria, and everyone went to their own town to register. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea, to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and the line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to a firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no guest room available for them. And there there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. Then this will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. Suddenly, a great company of the heavenly hosts appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest heavens, and on earth peace to those on whom his favor to rest. When the angels had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. So they hurried off and found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the manger. When they had seen him, they spread the word concerning what had been told to them about this child, and all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. And this is the word of God. Let us pray. Lord, in this familiar story, we pray you grant us fresh revelation. Above all, Lord, we pray you help us to make room and make more room for Jesus in our hearts and our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Good news. Today, a Savior is born. A very familiar message. But what if we try to contextualize that story in our world today? What if I told you that the Savior is born in the streets of Geylang? That the baby's mother is a 16-year-old student, his father is a construction worker, and the baby's great-grandmother was a prostitute. And the people who inform us about the Savior's birth, they are road sweepers. Now, how many of you will still believe me? I hear the sneakers just now. We're like, oh, can it be Geylang? Probably you think to yourselves, really, Geylang to a 16-year-old girl, student, and a migrant worker? And there's a prostitute as part of the ancestry. How can it be? And how do we know in our world, in our time and age, how do we know that this is not fake news? How can it be that a saviour is born in such terrible circumstances? Now, if you were God, how would you make your entrance into this world that you have created? Hello, Liz. How would you make your entrance into this world? You know, some of us might expect something very spectacular. Expect something very spectacular. For example, like a God bursting out of a rock. That's the way we make an entrance into the world. And even if it's not very spectacular, some of us probably think to ourselves, at least the birthplace should be sanitized, right? It should be a clean place. At the very least, the baby should be born in a hospital or a clinic. Certainly not in the streets of Geelang, where it's dirty, where there are drug peddlers, pimps and prostitutes, drunkards, where they may be, these people are found in abundance. And if you were God, how would you announce your coming into our world? Into your world? Who would you tell? If you were God, who would you announce these to? Most of us wouldn't think twice about posting it on Facebook, Instagram, to just tell the whole world what's happening. 
The rich and famous people might even have a press release and tell the whole world, hey, look, just like the royal family is always, uh, when they ever have a new birth there, it's met with much fanfare. So we all have a certain expectations of a saviour. And since the prophets say that the saviour is a descendant of King David, I think most of us would logically expect a saviour to be born in a palace, right? Certainly not in a cave, in a manger. At the very least, like I said, most of us would expect the Saviour to be born in a clean place, not along the streets of Geelang. And worse, how can the parents be such young and poor people, a student and a migrant worker? Now, before you think I'm exaggerating, if you can keep your focus, not on my daughter, (laughs) keep their thoughts, those emotions uh, in your mind as we examine a very familiar Christmas passage. Please go down. Thank you. Now, let's see, it's a familiar passage, but let's try, like I said, to try to read it for the first time as if we are hearing it for the very first time, just to get a sense of how unexpected the the birth of the Savior truly was. Number one, we start from the back. There was the unexpected choice of annunciation. Notice God didn't announce his birth to the high priest or any in the religious order. In other words, the pastors. No, not to these religious people. Neither did the angels appear to King Herod. All the ruling authorities, the Romans, no, none of them as well. Instead, the the angels announced the birth to a group of lowly shepherds. Now, please don't glorify the work of a shepherd. If you've been to the zoo, you know how the zoo smells like. That's what the shepherd would smell like. It's not a glamorous job. A shepherd is such a lowly job that Samuel, when the prophet Samuel in the Old Testament went to the house of Jesse to anoint a king, Jesse had all his sons gathered in except David, the last boy. And what was David asked to do? Left to tend the sheep. That low, unglamorous job that nobody wants to do. Jesse had ruled out his son David. He's not going to be king. He's the youngest. He's the lousiest. Let's leave him to look after the sheep while he gathered the rest of his sons to be chosen by the prophet Samuel. And so really, the shepherding was the most unwanted and the least glamorous job. And so God chose to announce his birth, not to the high and mighty, but to a group of lowly shepherds. That's the first thing that was unexpected. Second was the unexpected condition of birth. You know, we often like to imagine that because Joseph and Mary, they arrived at Bethlehem late at night, hence there was no room for them because, you know, the baby, oh, I cannot take it already. Oh, better time to give birth. So no choice, quickly just rush them to a corner to give birth. That's the typical musical scene. If you watch a drama of the nativity scene, that's what we like to imagine. But is that really the case? Look at verse 6. It says, while they were there, the time came for the baby to be born. In the Greek, literally, it says, while they were there, the days of his being born were fulfilled. In other words, there is a real possibility that Joseph and Mary spent quite a amount of time in Bethlehem before Jesus was born. And yet, there was no room, no lodging available, suitable for them. Now, you might think to yourself, why would that be the case? But actually, if you listen to my introduction, it's not that hard to imagine. First, Joseph was likely a very low-wage worker. The Greek word which we commonly translate as carpenter is literally two words, worker, or rather three, worker in wood. A worker in wood. So the root word actually is one who builds, likely someone who works in construction, either in stone or in wood. Right? So Joseph was likely a construction worker, albeit very skilled in carpentry, but still, nonetheless, he's a construction worker. When I went to Israel, 
This year, I discovered that Nazareth, where Joseph was based, was near a major Roman construction project. And so if you put the two together, it really makes sense because for Joseph, as a construction worker, to stay in Nazareth, to work near the Roman construction project, that's logical. Who would want to make that kind of journey every day, right? Only a construction worker would do that. And so with little fame, no asset to his name, of course, Joseph is not welcome, even in his own hometown. Secondly, in the conservative, traditional Asian society, many of us forget, they think that Christianity is a Western religion. It is not true. It's an Asian religion, if you technically think about it. In this conservative, traditional Asian family, society, an unwed pregnant lady seen with a low-wage worker. Can you imagine that scene? That's an extremely shameful and disgraceful scene. Plus, Bethlehem is not such a big town to begin with. Large town like Amokyo is probably too big for them. Probably only a few thousands at the most, two thousand at the most, Bethlehem. And so word gets around in a small community. Everybody will start hearing, hey, that's Joseph. Ooh, the poor chap. And then what's that? That young lady pregnant and they're not married. Word gets around. The gossip starts spreading. Who would welcome them? Would you welcome them? If they were relatives, would you welcome them into your home? So you see, we human beings often like to imagine the best. Or rather, we like to clean up, sanitize, you know, clean up the mess. Take for example, the next picture I'll show you. This picture of Jesus on the cross. It's a very gory image, all the blood. It's not a beautiful scene, right? But we human beings change it. Eventually, it gets changed to next picture. Oh, so glorious. And then... We start changing it further in the course of history. Not me, I'm telling you what has happened in history. Next picture. Whoa! Even more beautiful, right? The cross. And eventually, it evolves to... Merry Christmas. So you see, we human beings like to beautify. That's not a bad thing, but we generally, we like to do that. We like to clean up the mess. We like to romanticize that Joseph and Mary, they arrived late onto the scene. And so because so last minute, the baby, no choice. They had to just whisk them off to the nearest place to just give birth. The more probable reality I want to offer to us is this. Joseph's family is unwelcome in the entire stay in Bethlehem. The whole family was rejected right from the very beginning. Remember, a poor construction worker with a pregnant young lady. Would you welcome them? And then there's also the picture of a stable or a clean manger that we are often used to. Next picture. Whoa, so nice. Christmas, every time like that, so nice. But again, this is our romanticized view. The reality is probably a lot more like the next picture. Number one, first of all, I think it's more likely to be in a cave. They didn't have a lot of money. It's easier to build a house out of cave than to build everything up from scratch. Not like us here in Singapore. And so if it's a cave, they will probably use also a stone manger to feed animals as the bed for Jesus. It's probably not made of wood. Next picture. We like to imagine the manger also made of wood, filled with nice grass. But probably this is what Jesus first laid in when he was born. Made of wood, made of stone, born in a cave. And get this, eventually we see that Jesus would also be buried in a cave, laid behind a stone. Born in a virgin's womb, but died 
and buried, rather, buried in the virgin tomb, as in the tomb that was never used before. Joseph Arimathea, his, his, the tomb was prepared for, for him, but he never used it, and Jesus was buried there. Even the point where the scripture tells us that Jesus was wrapped in cloths. I mean, if you think about it, obviously, right, duh, obviously, who would put a baby naked on a place that is used to feed animals? So yucky, unsanitized, obviously, is duh, right? Why do you need to mention that? And mention twice. Because it is to foreshadow that Jesus would one day be wrapped in cloths, laid in the tomb. And so Jesus was rejected at his birth, and he will be rejected at his death. We human beings like to create things in our own image. We think that God must be like this. God must be like that. Because God is like this, He cannot do that, and so on and so forth. We have our own images of God in our minds. It's all about making God in our own image. In reality, it's God who has made us in His image. And we are told, in fact, warned never to make any object or turn any object into the image of God. God knows our propensity to create false idols and false gods, and so He wants us never make any image of God. The birth of Jesus then in a dirty and smelly place, cave, place in a stone manger, perhaps even rejected by His own grandparents, is not the idea that many of us are very comfortable with. Maybe you're now squirming your seats. How can it be? Pastor Anthony telling me all these things. But I'm telling you, this is unexpected, yes, but the more likely reality the conditions in which our Saviour was born. But there is one more unexpected thing in this passage, and that is the unexpected change of circumstances. For the first time ever, when Cornelius was governor of Syria, a census was ordered. And it's precisely because of this census that Joseph, this low-wage worker, had to make that long journey to Bethlehem. In fact, without this census, Joseph will probably be very happy. Wow, better keep this news to myself. My unpregnant wife, and then it's not by me, you know, such a disgraceful thing. I better keep staying in Nazareth and let's give birth to Jesus there. But no, because of this census, Joseph was forced to bring Mary and all this shame and baggage back to his hometown. Now, why would God do something like that? Something that would embarrass Joseph and Mary to subject them to such shame? Well, it's because God has the bigger picture in mind. God has the bigger picture in mind. It is in God's plan that the census was conducted so that the prophecies will be fulfilled. For hundreds of years, the prophets have been saying, the Savior will be born in the town of Bethlehem. The Savior of the world will be born in the town of Bethlehem. And so God orchestrated the circumstances of His day and so the census was conducted, and so Joseph and Mary had to return to Bethlehem to fulfill the words of prophecy. Just like the book of Esther, although there is no mention of God explicitly in these first few verses, we know that God is actually sovereign over the affairs of our world. We may not see God, but God is working behind the scenes. And so in just one short familiar passage, we see three unexpected things. The unexpected choice of nunciation, it is not the high and mighty who hear about the birth, but it's a group of lowly shepherds. We see the unexpected conditions of Jesus' birth, a saviour who is rejected by his own family right from the very beginning, born in a smelly cave with a stone manger fit only for use by animals. And finally, the unexpected change of circumstances, which brought about the entire domino effect. 
Ironically, if there's one thing that we can expect from this God, is this. God always does the unexpected. God always does the unexpected because He is God. God called Abraham to leave his homeland, his family, to go to a new place. And then God called Abraham, promised to give Abraham a land that is not his. It's not even his land, it's occupied by other people. And God gave this land to Abraham and his own descendant. He gave Abraham a son at 100 years old. Most of us don't even live to 100 years old. And then at this son that was born to his old age, God asked Abraham to sacrifice his own son Isaac. Unexpected. This is the son of the promise. And yet God said, come, offer your son Isaac as a sacrifice to me. Many other stories in the Old Testament, New Testament as well. Moses parting the Red Sea. Unexpected. A whole nation of slaves. Slaves of 400 years told to conquer a land filled with warriors. Unexpected. The battle at Jericho, marching around seven days. What kind of instruction and military strategy is that? Unexpected. Time does not really allow me to go into every Bible story, but you can read the Bible over and over again. You will see the same pattern, that God is giving ridiculous promises and instructions to His people. God always does the unexpected. And the pinnacle of this unexpected God, really, the pink, is God Himself crucified. Who would expect God to die? Even His disciple, Peter, the chief apostle, I preached about it the last time I preached. He did not expect the Messiah to die. Nobody in our logical mind would expect a Messiah, the Savior, to be crucified. For the philosophers, they always define God as unchanging. If you are unchanging, then you can be God. If you are subject to change, then you are not God. But here we have the greatest unexpected news ever, that the Savior of the world would die, be crucified and die. And that is why Apostle Paul says, preaching Christ crucified is a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Greeks. In the original language, the word for stumbling block is skandalon, from which we get the English word, scandal. Scandal. While the word foolishness, morea, is related to the English word moron. Anyone here wants to be a moron? You see? It's not something that we want to do, naturally. But God... Apostle Paul says, this is what we are called to do, to preach Christ, be a moron to the world, to be a scandal to the world, because we are bringing the scandal of grace. I've written in our journey newsletter some time back, how do I know that the Bible is real? A very common question. How do we know the Bible is real? And consequently, how do I know that God is real? Because for me, it's counterintuitive. The stories of the Bible are so incredible. The descriptions of what God would do are so incredulous that they cannot be a result of normal human imagination. It's so out of this world that it has to be out of this world. It has to come from someone who is not of this world. Like I said, we human beings like to clean up. We like to clean up the mess, present a perfect picture of God. But God, no. God loves the mess. God loves the mess. And Christmas is the best picture of a messy scene. I like one uh, preacher, you know, he posted on his Facebook, we can have a Merry Christmas only because there was a messy Christmas in the first place. So like I said, if there's anything un- uh, to be expected about God, is that God always does the unexpected. Who would expect the Savior of the world to be rejected from His birth? Who would expect the Savior of the world to be crucified? Who would expect 
that He will be resurrected from the dead, who will expect God's grace to be poured out freely to rascals like you and me. Who would expect, get this, God's Holy Spirit to live in sinful human beings. Unexpected, but amazing grace. Unexpected, but amazing grace. You know, I'm so glad as I did this reflection that God doesn't need me to be cleaned up before He accepts me. He accepts my mess, and my mess becomes His message. That's the God that we worship. That's the God that offers good news to you and to me. That's the good news of Christianity and of Christmas. Amazing, unexpected grace. We thank God for that. Now, having said that, to allay some of us who might then be very worried, why, if God is so unexpected, why He do something so unpredictable that my life becomes so chaotic? Is there something that we can reasonably expect from this unexpected God? The answer is yes, but perhaps not necessary according to our expectations. Number one, we can expect God to speak. God always speaks. He's always speaking, but perhaps not the way or the answer we would like to hear. God always speaks, so we expect God to speak, but perhaps not in the way that we expect God to say something to us. You know, many people expect God to speak with an audible voice, and tell you something. That's a typical expectation. But most of the time, God speaks with a still, small voice. And get this, God often speaks even through our enemies, people that we don't like, a family member whom you may not like very much, but they, he or she, may be the very person to speak God's truth to you, to disciple and to discipline you. So God always speaks, but it may not be the way we expect God to speak. Secondly, we can expect God to act, but perhaps not in the way or the timing that you prefer. Many people expect God to give immediate relief to our troubles, but quite often God gives us the grace, He gives us the patience to endure our suffering instead. As the Bible says in Isaiah chapter 55, verse 8, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are my ways your ways, declares the Lord. So God does some things differently from us. In fact, if you think about it, if God does everything we ask, we expect, then who's really God? God becomes the divine butler, our servant, just that He's God. But that doesn't make sense, right? If He is truly God, He will always do things that we don't expect because He is God and we are His servants. We are human beings. In fact, it is precisely again counterintuitive here that God is so unexpected that I have the confidence that God is real. That God has His own personality, He has His own desires because He does things that are so unexpected. Now, after these two points, you may be thinking to yourself, Pastor Anthony, are you really trying to comfort me? I don't hear any assurance that what can I expect from God? Now, here is the good news, really. There's one thing that we can expect from God that will allay your fears, is this, that God is faithful. He may not speak the way you like, He may not act in the timing that you like, but you can be sure of this one thing, that God is faithful. It is His nature to be faithful. Even when we are faithless, 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 13 says, even when we are faithless, God remains faithful because He cannot disown His own nature. And so when God calls us to be His people, 
He says, I will be your God and you will be my people. He will be faithful to his promises. He cannot deny himself. So as we move into 2019, at least one thing we can expect from God with assurance, full assurance, that God is faithful. As this song goes, we can sing this with confidence. I don't know. Please sing with me if you know this song. I don't know about tomorrow. I just live from day to day. I don't borrow from its sunshine. Cause the skies may turn to grey. I don't worry about the future. Cause I know what Jesus said. And today I'll walk beside Him, for He knows what is ahead. Many things about tomorrow I don't seem to understand, but I know who holds tomorrow, and I know who holds my hand. This is what we hold on to as we go into 2019. We may not know how He will speak to us, how He will answer our prayers, but we know who holds our hands. Two other things, very quickly, we can expect from this faithful God. Because God is faithful and true to His Word, number four, we can expect God to return. This is good news. For those of us who are longing for His return, He's going to return. But for those of us who are unprepared, wake up. It's time to wake up because God will return. And number five five here, we can expect God, therefore, to hold us accountable. God will hold us accountable for our words and our actions when He returns. With that, let me move on to the last part. How then should we live in light of these words, the truths of Scripture? Luke chapter 2, verses 1 to 18 teaches us three, three lessons here. Number one, the first point is about being ordinary. Don't try looking for God only in the spectacular things. We human beings like fireworks, all the spectacular stuff. But God is often found, like I said, in the ordinary things, in that still small voice, often speaking to us through mundane events and people, people that we don't expect. For example, maybe the unexpected uncle who manages the toilet, the unexpected auntie who comes to clean your table, or the unexpected migrant worker who sits next to you in the train with a smell that you may not like very much. But these are the people that God may be sending to speak to us and to teach us how to serve them instead. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 2 teaches us, Do not forget to show hospitality to strangers, for by so doing, some people have shown hospitality to angels without knowing it. Sub-point here about being ordinary. Therefore, don't try to be someone that you are not. And don't try to be a superstar. Please, don't try to be a superstar. You see, God loves really using the ordinary, the small little things to accomplish His great, grand purposes. Then God gets all the glory. So don't try to be a superstar, please. Let's all try to be ordinary. The good news is, we were all ordinary to begin with. Anyone born here able to run and speak a thousand words at birth? No. You see, we are all born ordinary for a reason. That God may use ordinary things for His great purpose. So let's 
learn to keep this state. In fact, First Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 11 to 12 says this, Make it your ambition to lead a quiet life. Believe it or not, make it your ambition to lead a quiet life. You should mind your own business, not in the sense that we are uncaring, but imagine a typical scenario, office gossips, family gossips, and this verse says, mind your own business. Don't join in. Do your work. Do your work. Make your ambition to lead a quiet life. Do not join in with the crowd. Work with your hands at home, at work, just as we told you, so that your daily life may win the respect of outsiders, so that you will not be dependent on anyone. In fact, the more ordinary you are, if you think to yourself, I am the nobody, great news, you are in the best place to be used by God. Okay? If you think to yourself, I'm a nobody, great. Then God can use you mightily. But if you think I'm somebody, God says He would humble the proud and exalt those who are humble. And so if you think to yourself, I'm a nobody, great. You are ordinary and God loves to use the ordinary. Or if you think to yourself, when I do these things, nobody sees me. When I do all the Christian things of love, nobody sees me. The uncle doesn't thank me. The auntie doesn't thank me. The office doesn't change. Your rewards are in heaven. If nobody sees you, all the more better, then your rewards are truly in heaven. Because if you do things and people see it, then your rewards are on earth. So be ordinary. Seek to be ordinary. Number two, be open. Since the only reasonable thing we can expect from God is His faithfulness, we must be open to the various ways in which God may speak to us. Be open. He may speak to you while you're walking home from the bus stop. He may speak to you from when you're in the shower. You never know when He might speak to you. Just be open to what the Lord may say to you. Be open also to the various possibilities that God may guide you in the future. You may think to yourself, this position is terrible. But God says, do it, take it up anyway. Be open to that. You may not like your job, you may want to quit, you feel like quitting. But God says, I want you to persevere there because I want to teach you a lesson. Be open to it and follow through to whatever God calls us to do. When we say be open as well, I think we should at least... Open up our scriptures regularly, daily, as often as possible. Open up our Bibles because God will surely speak to us from His Word. He has already spoken through that Word a thousand times through a thousand generations and He will continue to speak to us through that faithful Word. So open up your Bibles as often as you can. Keep your heart, mind and spirit open whenever you read the Bible. What the Lord may speak to you through His Word. And final point, be obedient. Be obedient. Behind every Christmas story is the simple obedience of Joseph and Mary. Their simple obedience. How they laid down their lives and their faces, their pride, bore the shame of being rejected by their own family. They chose to obey nonetheless. So be obedient. Even if it's the path of suffering, the way of the cross, be obedient to what God would want us to do. 1 Samuel chapter 15, verse 22 says this, Does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as in obeying the Lord? To obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed is better than the fat of rams. To obey is better than sacrifice. I know many of us have a habit of attending church, not just at Christmas, but religiously every Sunday. And that's good. But I pray we can go further in 2019 to learn that our obedience is not just on Sunday, 
It's a daily obedience. Daily obedience. And that is more desired than just the weekly sacrifices, the weekly attendances in church. You see, one day we must give an account for our lives. Not just how we live on Sundays, but every single day of our lives. So let's learn to be obedient every single day. If there's one thing that we can reasonably expect from an unexpected God is is undying love for us, then I think God deserves to expect from us our unquestioned obedience. Our unquestioned obedience to His will, His word, to God's Spirit. And so may God's Spirit enable all of us to be ordinary, to be open and to be obedient children this Christmas season and also in 2019. Let us pray. God, we thank you once again as we revisit this familiar Christmas story. Thank you for reminding us how you were rejected right from the very beginning and all the way to the end as well. Forgive us for the many times we have created an image of you, even God, in our own minds, our own image, who you should be like. Forgive us if those false images are not who you really are. Help us once again to return to your word. Remind us to be obedient. Help us really to be obedient children, open to whatever you may say to us, in whatever way you may lead us. Come 2019, because God, we know we can hold on to the hands of a faithful God. And so we commit ourselves afresh to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.